Good morning. Thank you for coming. Um, my name is Paula Harrington. I'm from Calvert City, Kentucky, which is just close to Paducah, Kentucky. Come on in. Come on in. Good morning. I have five children. I have a wonderful husband, five children, one grandbaby who the cutest grandbaby. I have about 7,000 pictures, so if you want to see her when, oh, when it's over, come get with me and I'll show you. We live um, in Marshall County, Kentucky, and Marshall County's colors are blue and orange, like Pepperdine's colors. So I think, I think that's a match made in heaven. Couldn't be a coincidence. But I'm so glad you're here. The title of my lesson is The Joy of Rebel and Warriors. And when I told some friends about that, they asked me if maybe I wanted to rethink that title. It kind of bothered them a little bit. And I liked it, because I thought, you know, it's rebels and warriors who followed the Jewish Messiah. It was the rebels and warriors who went to him for comfort and went to him for healing. It was the rebels and warriors who cried at the cross and were amazed at the empty tomb. It was the rebel and warriors who stood in front of the Sanhedrin and proclaimed the name of Jesus, even when they weren't supposed to. It was the rebels and warriors who turned the world upside down in Acts 17 and who continued to turn the world upside down in 2018. You can't come face to face with Jesus. You can't be changed by his spirit. You can't not. But you certainly will be a rebel and warrior in the face of this worldly culture. The rebels and warriors speak light into darkness. They speak light into hopelessness. And it has so much less to do with the hot button issues in the church and it has everything to do with how we love our neighbors especially our neighbors who don't look like us and who don't live like us and who don't sin like us. And when we get that, we get joy. Joy becomes the soundtrack to our life when we have seen Jesus and we've spent time with him and we realize how much we need him and his people. I have a good friend who doesn't do church, um, and we talk about that a lot, and he'll ask me, why? Why church? And I thought about that, and that day I just really didn't give him a good answer. So I went home and I thought about, why church? I mean, why do I keep going? Is it because my dad, my granddad, my uncles, my brother were preachers? You know, I just was born and raised in the church, but why church? And I thought and I prayed that I wanted a good answer for that. Come on in. Sorry. Good morning. Come on in. Sorry to be late. No, you're fine. We're so glad you're here. We couldn't find you. <laughs> you're in the right class. Please. You are. Come on in. Good morning. Find your seat. They all have wheels, so you can roll it anywhere you want to, just not out the door. It's already shut. Okay, so we're talking about a friend asked me why church, because he, he doesn't go, and I do. And I just really agonized over my lack of answer. And I thought about it. And I prayed about it. And one Sunday morning, I was sitting in front of my best friend. Met her when I was three years old, and she was four years old. So we've been friends for almost 44 years. And she has this beautiful singing voice. She's an alto. Is anybody in here an alto? Okay. I'm not. I'm a soprano. Come on in. Good morning. And I want to be an alto so badly. But I'm not. I can't. But when I sit in front of her, I can sing alto. I've tried to sing alto on my own, and it is not good. Come on in, guys. Good morning. One time I was at a youth event, and they were singing this beautiful song, and it had this beautiful alto part that nobody was singing. And I was like, I got that. 
So I started trying to sing it, and I was so off-key, and I was so out of tune, and I kept thinking, okay, I'm just gonna keep doing it, I'm gonna get it, I'm gonna get it, and this is where the narrator would say, she did not get it. <laughs> it was bad, and when it was over, I was so embarrassed, and the teenager sitting in front of me turned around like, who are you? <laughs> so, but when I were at church, I can sing alto. So I was talking to my friend, and he's like, so you go to church so you can sing alto? And I was like, no, it's not about singing. I go to church because I want to love more. I want to love better. I want to be more compassionate. I want to be more merciful. I need group therapy. So that's why I go. Good morning. I want to understand scripture a little bit better. I want to see how somebody else understands scripture. I want to understand people. I want to understand me a little bit better. Because I have a hard time getting caught up in this world. If you follow me on Twitter, you might even see that. I get scared. I get sometimes downright terrified. My daughter is a junior at a school that made national news on January 23rd when one of her friends took a gun into school and shot 18 people. He killed two of them. Before he went into the commons and opened fire, he was in the band room, and my daughter was sitting on the floor in the band room with her friends. And she said he walked in like he does every morning, and he walked around her, and he had his bag, and he left that room, and he went into another room and opened fire. That was on a Tuesday. On that Friday, I had to fly to South Texas and speak about being fearless, and I wasn't. I was a mess. But on that Wednesday, between Tuesday and Friday, I sat at the church building in a circle with other Christians, and we prayed, and we cried, and we received strength from each other. And one of the people in that circle was one of my elders. He was a retired surgeon. 20 years ago, he was the lead surgeon at the hospital when another school shooting had happened in our area and where we had lost four children. And he opened up and he told that story. And I had never heard his story. It was powerful. I needed to hear that story. I needed that wisdom. I needed to know that it's going to be okay. God works through his people. I need church to remind me of what really matters. I need advisors. I need mentors to gently nudge me back on the straight and narrow. <coughs> That's my church. We can't grow on our own. We need church. I teach art at a little elementary school in Calvert City, Kentucky, and a couple of weeks ago we had this really cute lesson about this little fish who grew up and went off into the big ocean on his own, and his mom and dad um, gave him good advice, and they wanted him to succeed. So we talked about that, and we painted little rocks to look like fish, and we made inspirational posters to hang up and around, and cute little posters. And I told the kids when we were painting fish, I said, this is your baby fish. What do you want to tell him or her to, so they can survive in this world? And they did precious little posters. Um, and one of my friends made a little poster about don't be a couch potato. Apparently that's a thing with fish. I had no idea. <laughs> he said, you know, go home and exercise. And I said, oh, buddy, that's my problem. I go home and get on the couch. I don't exercise. And he said, well, Miss Paula, I made this poster for you. And I thought, I walked right into that. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to go home and exercise. And I knew if I didn't, he was going to be very disappointed. But good advice, good advice is great. But good examples are better. 
and church is where the good examples are. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to work with the Homestead Church of Christ in South Miami-Dade County, and this phenomenal bus ministry and children's ministry that we had. And it was me and a friend um, from the school where I teach, and we both went down, and we're just amazed and on fire for Jesus for what they're doing. They're going into communities, um, apartment projects in Florida City, and throwing vacation Bible schools every Saturday. How many of you guys have done a vacation Bible school? You know it's hard work. Can you imagine doing it every Saturday in a parking lot of an apartment complex? It's amazing. I mean, while we were there, three parents got baptized because, you know, they had, they had a relationship with this church. It was just amazing. And we drove home from Miami thinking, we've got to do something. We can't just let this be a trip. We've got to bring this back to Calvert City somehow. What can we do? And we thought, we work with 350 kids a week. But we work in a public school and we're teachers. Can't talk about God at school. So I went to my principal. I said, could we do a Bible club after school? And she gave me that look like, Ugh. And she sat back in her chair, and you could see the wheels turning. And she said, if I get fired for that, that would be something worth getting fired for. So we had 80 kids the first year. 80 kids in our little county that has a church building on almost every corner, the majority of our kids were unchurched. The majority of our kids only knew Jesus' name as a curse word. They didn't know. When we first, okay, we do our Bible club, the I Believe Club. It's kind of set up like a vacation Bible school. We have four sessions, and we've asked, we ask priests, and we ask pastors, and worship leaders, and Bible class teachers, anybody in the community. We said, will you help us do this, you know? We did background checks, and we were very particular about who gets to come in and teach our kids. And um, But one of a, one good friend of mine, he's a youth leader in the county, and he does the game section, and we rotate every 15 minutes. So he's the game leader, and he picks on the kids. He loves them, and he tells them, you know, if you win, you might win a free puppy. Miss Paula will give you a free puppy. The first couple, you know, meetings, they were so excited, and then they started learning that Mr. Pete, he's not going to give a free puppy. There's no free puppy. So when we had our last meeting of the year, um, the youth leader couldn't be there. He had missed a couple. And he came to the party, and one of our little boys ran up to him and hugged him. And he said, I know you're a liar, but I love you, and I missed you so much. <laughs> and I, after I stopped laughing, I thought, that's church. Maybe not that brutally honest, but I know you, and I love you so much. Rebels and warriors look at this world and they say, not on my watch. Not on my watch. Because on my watch, the hungry will be fed. The naked will be clothed. The broken will have a friend who will listen and love them. On my watch, people will see Jesus. We need more rebellious people in the church who will look at this world and say, evil doesn't get the last word. Not on my watch. In Luke 7, in Luke 7, we see this really neat little story of Jesus and his followers come upon a funeral procession. And Jesus looks at this widow of Nain who had lost her only son. And the text said, And when the Lord Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. And right after this, he brings the widow of Nain's only son back to life. Rebels and warriors understand that if you want to be more like Jesus, when you see someone in pain, you care about them and you do something for them. 
If you see someone living in drama and despair, you care about them and you do something for them. If you see someone who's living in a pit, even if it's by their own choices, you care about them and you do something for them. If you see someone living in a lifestyle that you don't approve of or that you don't understand, you care about them and you do something for them because that's what will make a difference in this world. Not judging them, not condemning them, not telling them how wrong and sinful and stupid they are, not talking about them behind their back, but taking action, doing what Jesus did. The world has enough people who don't care. The church has to be the ones who do. And on that same line, the church has enough critics and complainers. She deserves, she needs more cheerleaders. In that same little section in Luke 7, 16, the text says that the people in the funeral procession were in awe and they praised God. They said God has come to help his people. Church is for people helping. So why church? That's why. You know, when I was a kid, though, I might have told you that um, church was a time and a place. I might have told you about the wooden pews or the nice clothes or the people who loved keeping the preacher's kids on Sunday afternoons. As a teen, I might have told you that place, um, that church was a place of hypocrites and judges. I might have told you that my Saturday night lifestyle sometimes intruded into my Sunday mornings. When I became a young single mother, I might have stated that church was where I knew I needed to be, but I felt so unworthy to be there. Those people that were there, they just seemed to be clean and have shiny lives, and I certainly didn't want them to see what a mess mine had turned out to be. But as I grew, my understanding of church evolved, and I learned it's not a destination, it's a group of called out. It's not a social club, it's not a checklist, it's not a pattern or a plan that's closely adhered to out of this equal dose of faith and fear. It's a group of rebels and warriors called holy and chosen and dearly loved. And you know, sometimes we're different, and that's okay. You know, sometimes, we have all the right answers, and sometimes, you know, there are some just desperately seeking the right questions. There are some who have their feet firmly planted on a familiar path of their forefathers, and there are some who venture into uncharted territories and do new things, and that's okay. We need each other. So I'm excited. I'm thankful that um, church is so much more than I thought it was. Church is the desperate being rescued. It's the imprisoned being free. It's the oppressed being loved and heard. It's the orphans being parented, and it's the dead being brought back to new life. It's not just people. Church is stories, elegant tales of pain and heartache and catastrophe and triumph. It's different stories from diverse places, all with the same lovely ending. Because when Jesus gets involved, every story becomes a love story. We've been waiting for you, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> We're glad you're here. If you call me out, I'll participate. So. <laughs> I was reading in Matthew 14 the other day about Jesus feeding the 5,000. You guys know the story. Mm-hmm. We've all read it. We know it. We've talked about it. But as I was reading about it, I kind of saw something that I'd never really seen before. I saw the people who were passing out the bread. The people who knew that we only have, you know, a couple loaves and a few fish. And I saw the people reaching into that empty basket and pulling out food and feeding others. And they didn't let their lack of understanding scare them away. They just kept 
feeding people. They kept helping people. And I heard and saw the laughter and the joy and the thrill. Watching God work is so amazingly exciting. You can't help to be joyful. You can't help to be amazed. And I think that one of the reasons there's so many bitter, depressed, the sky is falling Christians is we have stopped watching God work. God's not boring, and we should not be boring either. We need more people ready to not only watch God, but to jump in and join God. We need people that will pick up the baskets and start serving. That's the joy of rebels and warriors. We need to surround ourselves with people who are so excited to work for God, even if they don't really completely understand what's going on or what he's doing, but they're there and they're working. We need to surround ourselves with them, and then we need to become one. Because our churches need that. We need, we need more people who are thrilled. The youth needs to see their commitment. The seniors need to see their zeal. The world needs their hope on social media and in our schools and in our workplaces. We have enough people who are pew warmers. We need the waiters. We need the servants. We need the joyful disciples who are excited to tell you what God is doing. We have too many couch potato Christians, and I've been one. I am one. I'm there but we need that to end. We need more rebels and warriors in the church. So being at school and getting to meet kids, I love kids. They are so brutally honest. They are so much fun. They're so funny. A couple of years ago, I met one who's just precious. And you could just kind of look at her and tell she was a mess. And when I got to know her, I learned firsthand that she was. And every time I saw her, though, she'd want to tell me about her mom. That was like the first thing she said when I met her. She wanted to tell me a story about my mom. My mom and I do this, and we do that. And she was so excited to tell me about mom. And when she would come to my class, she'd always say, well, we have enough time for me to draw my mom a picture? I'd say, yes, we'll have enough time for that. And after she drew a cute little picture, she'd come to me, or I'd come to her, and she'd say, I need you to tell me how to write mom's name. And I'd say, M-O-M. And she's like, no, her real name. So she'd tell me, and I'd tell her. And she'd write that name just as carefully. You know, she'd spell those letters perfectly. She took so much time writing those letters. And then she'd whip that paper over in a flash, and she'd scribble her name across the back, and she'd leave out letters, and she'd turn them backwards. Because the name on the back wasn't nearly as important as the name on the front. And in the mornings, I'd see her in the hallways, and I'd ask how she was, and we'd hold hands, and I was usually headed to the coffee pot, and she was headed to the cafeteria, and she'd tell me something about her mom. And then she'd take off, and she'd usually run. There was no walking in her vocabulary. She just ran everywhere she went. And I love that her mind was on her mom, but it also broke my heart. Because had I met her in any other context, I would have just assumed that she lived with mom and life was great, but she didn't and it wasn't. And I knew before I ever met her that she was in a good home, but it wasn't her home. But one way to keep mom close was to talk about her and to laugh about her and to laugh about the good, fun things they had done and to not let mom become a memory. And joy is available when we choose to see our savior through our struggle. That's our goal as children of God, to talk about him, to think about him, to, to remind ourselves of what he's done and continues to do for us and to not let him fade into the background of our hectic, busy lives and to not get so overwhelmed by those hardships that, um, that we forget, that joy and hope, it is available. We've got to make sure that we're living for the name on the front 
and not get so wrapped up in the name of that. Being a rebel and a warrior is not about throwing punches. It's about taking them and still loving and still serving and still believing. I love survival stories. I saw a second grader one early Monday morning after a long break. And she was coming down the hallway. She had been dropped off. And I mean, y'all, her hair hadn't been brushed. It was just sticking up. Her clothes didn't match. Her shoes weren't tight. She just had this scowl about her. And I was like, good morning. And she just kind of looked at me. And I said, um, I said, do you have your coffee? And she gave me that look, you know, like second graders don't drink coffee. And I said, well, how are you ever going to survive today? And as she walked past me dragging her book bag, she said, I just decided to survive. <laughs> and I thought, rebels and warriors, that's what we do. We just decide to survive. We have so many examples of survivors in our Bible and in our lives. When faced with the annihilation of her people, and despite fear, Esther rebelled against protocol and went to the king. When thrown in the dungeon prison, Joseph fought to remain faithful. In the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed. When everybody else was doubting and being negative, Joshua and Caleb believed and stayed positive. In the agony of grief, Job worshipped. When others turned away from God, Jeremiah proclaimed his greatness. And do you remember what the Son of God was doing when his death was near? He was washing our feet. What beautiful rebellion. And you know, if we could sit down and talk to any of them and ask them if it was easy, do you think they'd tell us it was? No. No, they fought fear. They fought doubt. But because of Jesus, they overcame. Sometimes it's hard to talk about where, what we've been through in our childhoods and in our lives. You know, when we get to church and people say, how are you doing? We say, oh, fine. And they say, they're fine. And we walk past each other. And we, sometimes we don't take the time to really get to know one another. Because if we're being honest, we might say, um, you know, we might be honest. We might say a good marriage is difficult and rare. Kids have problems. Jobs don't always work out the way we want them to. Life can be lonely. Life leaves scars. And we can wallow in that self-pity or we can rise above it and we can use our burdens to bless others. I love what God told Abraham at the end of Genesis 12 too. He said, I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. But at the end he says, and you will be a blessing to others. God gives each of us a story so that we can bless others. We need to get comfortable telling one another where we've been through and what God's done for us. That's powerful. That's church. That's encouragement and hope, and that's joy. The last time my dad preached in a pulpit was a Sunday morning. I was maybe five or six. I'll never forget it because dad wasn't behind the pulpit. This time he was in a wheelchair in front of the pulpit. His body was weak and frail and slouched in a wheelchair in the front of the auditorium. His voice was slurred and barely audible. Doctors had just told him not long before that he had a myotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. And even though this was his last time in a pulpit, that wasn't his final sermon. Dad continued to preach by the way he lived the remainder of his life, by the way he influenced the other nursing, or the other residents at the nursing home, by the way he made the nurses laugh, 
or the way he encouraged those people who came to encourage him. That was his greatest sermon, and that was an act of rebellion because he dared to die gracefully. I didn't see the moments of doubt or the wrestling with God, but I know he had them. And if other people saw that, that's not what they chose to remember and pass down to his children. Dad died on December 30th, 1980. He was barely 30 years old. I was nine and my brother was four. And Dad's death and the years following ushered in a, an even darker time for us. My mom was a preacher's daughter. She had grown up living in that fishbowl. And she struggled with mental illness. She struggled with addiction to pills and to alcohol. But on Sundays, we drove to that big building in Paducah, Kentucky, and we parked there because my grandfather was the minister. And it didn't matter that mom had drank the night before. It didn't matter that she had bought alcohol for her very young elementary age children the night before either. We just went and we hid on a pew in front of everyone. And we never told our teachers, my brother and I, we never let anything slip to our grandparents. We just seemed to live this life that was barely out of control. And we knew that, even though we were young children. I moved out when I was 17 and moved to the big city of Nashville and got involved with people I should have never gotten involved with and did things I never should have done. And my mom and I had a very hard time of seeing eye to eye. But there was a weekend um, near the end of 1990 that she and I got to spend together. And it was really the first time that we were able to talk as adults. I was 19, came home, spent the weekend, and it was nice. It was good. But on the morning of December 30th, 1990, I drove back to Nashville. That was the 10-year anniversary of Dad's death, and I tried not to think about it the whole time, but as some of you may know, sometimes anniversaries hover like a dark cloud. And that afternoon, Mom called to uh, make sure I had gotten home okay, and we talked for a while. But then that night, about an hour or two later, I got another phone call from some family friends. Mom had been killed in a car wreck. 10 years to the night of dad's death. She was 38, I was barely 19. And in the throes of just grief and anger, I, tur I turned down a, a full scholarship to David Liscom University. I had no idea what I was doing because I have children now that I'm paying for college for. And I married a boy that um, I had barely known, had met him maybe the weekend before. We, may we had two babies in two years. And throughout those two years, things kept happening that told me that this is not going to work. I had a two-year-old and a two-week-old when I became a single mother. I was 22. I had no place to live, no car, no job, no driver's license, no money, and no parents to go home to. And it was time to get serious. It was time to get serious about the Jesus that my dad and granddad knew. I could not shake that memory of dad sitting in that wheelchair that Sunday morning telling other people about hope, about Jesus, and about encouragement. He called his diagnosis a blessing. He actually said that we're all going to die, but I'm blessed to know that my time is coming soon. But to me, it was a curse. And I thought about that, and I thought about mom getting clean and coming back to church and coming back to God. Um, just a few months before she died, and I just tried to process something that was so hard to process. And I had nowhere else to turn, but I turned to Scripture. And I spent weeks and months going over the words in black and red. Was it really true? 
could have could have truly happened? You know, was it more than just a flannel graph Bible story on Sunday mornings? And the more I read, the more fervently I prayed. And I took the words from that book and I read them in a completely different setting. Not in a everything's perfect, we're all fine setting, but in a desperate setting, in an urgency setting that my life and my children's lives depended on. And it was there in the words of Jesus that I found hope. The inspired words of the New Testament is I saw a future and a purpose and a plan for my life. In the ancient words of the Old Testament, I found a connection with other seekers, other tired and scarred seekers. And because of my history, God has given me so many beautiful opportunities to sit with young single moms or with kids going through hard times and, and connect with them. We speak the same language. It's easy for me to do that. I like to do that. I like to tell people that there's so much more than this because the only way to survive this life is to take our past and our pain and whatever we're going through to the altar of the creator of the universe. We've got to accept that healing and that grace, and then we can use our blessings to bless others. We need to seek out those who struggle, and that's going to mean getting out of our comfort zone and going to where they are, not just opening our building and inviting them in. God did that for me and my brother. He sent a Christian couple into our lives. They were neighbors and members of the congregation where Dad had preached. <coughs> Ten years before we moved to that area, they lost their six-year-old son to cancer. They knew we were in need. And they did what no one else was willing to do. They got involved completely. One of my favorite quotes is, it's not your ability that can change the world, it's your availability that can change the world. They made themselves available. Their home was our quiet place growing up. That's where we ate our vegetables and that's where I learned to sew. They took us to the doctor and the dentist. We went to bed on time at their house. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> they bought our school clothes. They bought our school supplies. They bought yearbooks. Because the way they had been in our lives the whole time, when my mother died, a very wise judge gave them custody of my little brother not someone in the family. A few years later, they sent him to preaching school. He became a minister, a missionary. Now he's a counselor. And my brother's children are the only children who call this couple grandma and grandpa. That's not fate. That's not karma. That's not luck or just how things turn out. That is God. There is peace and joy. There's hope in the midst of turmoil and dysfunction. We just have to be willing to see it. We need to rebel against a world that says, don't get involved, or nothing really matters. We need to fight for others with love and compassion and grace. We need to tell them that this isn't the plan for their lives. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This is not how their story has to end. We need to tell them about Jesus. So back to the story. I was a single mom for four years. I went back to college, or I went to college during this time. Um, was homeless for a little bit with the boys, but we got a low-income apartment. Um, went to college, not to the big, cool Christian college, but to another college, and that was okay. And four years later, on Friday the 13th at Chuck E. Cheese, mm -hmm. I met another struggling single parent who had two kids. Mm -hmm. That's God's sense of humor. 
good things happening at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> and so the night we married, we had a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, and a seven-year-old. We went through the process to change everyone's names and make it legal, and God blended our family beautifully. The preacher that um, married us, he said, God has brought two children out of your lives, and now God is bringing two children into your lives. And those are God's kids. Those are not yours. So we never used the term step. And when people would ask me, so which ones are yours? And which ones are John's? I'd say, they're all ours. Mm -hmm. Who am I to call them out? God made us family. And we made sure that we respected and that they respected their other biological parents. And we tried to love them. And we never put them down in front of the kids. We tried never to put them down anywhere, but we did talk a lot about it. But the kids knew that we loved them, and the kids knew that they were God's kids, and that we are God's kids, and that their other parents are God's kids. So we have to be respectful. And it was hard. Y'all, it was hard. But it's been 20 years, and we still like each other. You know, not just love each other, we like each other. And it was beautiful. And God has brought other kids into our lives over the last 20 years that we've been able to love on. And we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about ourselves. But thankfully, we've learned a lot more about God. You know, if we're not setting our minds on things above, if we're not thanking Jesus, we won't be joyful. And we certainly won't survive. So, excuse me, what if you didn't have a childhood like mine? You know, what if your parents were great and godly, and I hope they were. I've got a real good friend, a friend, and we talk about that sometimes. His parents were the same people at home as they were in the church building, just precious people. And we talk about, and he'll go, um, we go to places, we go into communities, and we work together. And it's, he's never seen some of the things that, you know, we're working with. And it's hard for him, and we talk about that. And he's learning a lot. And it may be a little more difficult for him, but I always think that if, if, shouldn't he be prepared better to help people, maybe? He didn't have the dysfunction, but I love the way God brings us all in together through church and says, do this together and learn from each other. I love Hebrews 11 because that's our, our chapter of faith. But we have modern-day faith heroes, too. And we need to call them out, and we need to thank them, and we need to let them know what they've done in our lives. Just the other day, I've been at a congregation where we are now for like three years, and just the other day I was sitting and talking to a sweet lady that I've never really had the chance to talk to. And um, she's, the, um, she's the one in charge of our sewing ministry at church. She's precious, and they do these little dresses, and they send them out in Kentucky, and they send them out all over the world. And she said um, when she was nine years old, she lost her mother. There were three kids in her family, and her dad chose to keep those kids at a time where a lot of single men couldn't. So she told me that um, after her mom died, some women from the local church came in and took care of them and brought them food and brought them dresses and brought them clothes. And if she said, you know, Paula, I can't thank those women, but I can help other children. And she said, that's my thanks to them. And I thought that is so beautiful. Uh, and now she's in charge of our sewing ministry so you can see God working another one of my 
people that I want to tell you about, and then I'll land this plane, I promise. I was on my way to church one Sunday morning, <clears throat> and I received a message that a good friend of mine and a co-worker in the kingdom had been um, approached by armed gunmen and shot and killed in Haiti. They shot and killed her, and then they kidnapped one of the young children with her. And Roberta Edwards is and always will be one of my favorite rebels and warriors in the church. Honestly, the first time I went to Haiti, I wasn't prepared for the chaos, the poverty. It was just overwhelming, and I, I had no way to filter that. So the first night I was there, I laid in bed, and I just prayed and fought off a panic attack. Um, how was I ever going to teach about Jesus? How was I ever going to be able to stay that long and be so disconnected? And I'm just going to put this out there and hope you guys don't judge me, but I like electricity. I like electricity so much. And so I just had to deal with that. And I had traveled out of the country before, but I'd never been to any place like Haiti. But you know what? We find out who we really are when we step out of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I was in shock the next morning, and it just came with a flurry of activity. And luckily, I was so busy thinking about where I was going and what I was going to talk about than to worry about where I was. And um, that first day, Roberta, she translated my lessons, and um, we spoke on everything from, from blending families to Jesus to creation. And the end of the first day, we were sitting um, outside a home in Port-au-Prince, and the first song sang by her children, and there were like 20 kids there, precious kids. But the first song we sang was Do Not Fear. And Hillsong has a beautiful version, but it couldn't lay, it couldn't touch the one that was led that night by those kids. It was perfect. And I knew God had heard my prayers. I knew that he was faithful. I knew that this was going to be a powerful trip. But God knew I needed to hear that song, and he chose the most precious voices to sing it to me. The song is taken from Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, and there we're reminded what to do when faced with grief or evil or anything that shakes our faith. Do not fear. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I kind of wish in that God had said, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. You might lose something. You might lose everything. But I will not leave you. I was holding on for dear life a few days into that trip as um, Roberta navigated the streets of Port-au-Prince. And the traffic rules there are just suggestions. (laughs) And we drove. And when we merged... Honestly, when we merged in traffic, the cars merged metal to metal. And she had a bag of zip ties in her front floorboard because anytime the bumper would get knocked off, she'd just pull over and put the bumper back on with zip ties. I had taught four kids how to drive, so I didn't have any nerves left. So I sat in the front, and then the friend I went with was in the back. And she would tell us these stories as we were driving, probably to get our minds off of what was happening. Every day at Roberta's house, upwards of 200 children would walk to her home, a giant home surrounded by high walls and razor wire, and she would feed those kids, and she would teach them a Bible story. But she said one week, several of the kids didn't come, and she was worried. 
So she started getting the word out, trying to find out where they are. And she finally found one little girl. And she said, well, we can't come to your house because the monster lives on the way to your house. And she tried to understand what she meant by monster. And she's telling me the story, and it's terrifying me. And I was like, well, what'd you do? And she said, well, I just went in search of the monster. And she said, what I found was a small body lying on a rock. Scabs had covered his eyes. And she said his skin resembled ground beef. Due to that skin condition, slow movements were accompanied by loud moans. And he was only four years old. When the other children would walk by, he would try to get them so they could help him. And she got busy doing what she did best, caring. She started calling her people in the States and her contacts in Haiti to get him medical attention. A few months later, he had gotten the medicine he needed. And that child, who others called a monster, was soon healthy and happy and called his savior mother. She was telling me that story, and she said... Well, that's, and then she told me his name, and I was like, what? Because at that time, he was 18 years old, and he was a handsome kid, and he had been one of our translators. I mean, strong. I would have never thought that was his story. And after she was killed, it just, I just kept thinking, what about those kids? What about those kids? What about Haiti? And then I remembered, oh, God's still there. God's still there. I kept having to tell myself that God's still doing great things in Haiti, and he will continue. Despite evil's cowardly schemes, despite how much we hurt and ache, despite our fear of the future, despite a lack of understanding, God is still there. And when I think about this now, I don't think about what happened at the end of her life. I think about the love she had for the least of these. She was a smart smart woman, highly educated. She could have returned to the comforts of this country, her home, anytime she wanted to, but she loved too much to leave the orphans and the people there that she cared for. She could have left after the devastating earthquake in Haiti that took one of her own children, but she loved the people too much there. She could have chosen a different path in life at any time, but she loved the people there too much. And you know, Roberta didn't go to Haiti to change the world, but by faith, she did. She did. For the children she helped, by the women she taught her wonderful business skills to, to the people who knew her and loved her. And I look forward to seeing her again. And you know, if you've ever wondered what Jesus looks like, that's it. He sought us out. He called us his own. He healed us. That's what Jesus looks like. Our Savior entered this darkness and he offered hope. That's what Roberto was doing in Haiti. That's what God's still doing in Haiti. That's what Christians are doing all over the world. That's what Gary and Michelle Ford are doing in Thailand. That's what Roy and Kathy Merritt are doing in Zambia. That's what Mark and Allison Carnes are doing in Ethiopia. That's what the Homestead Church is doing in South Miami-Dade County. And that's what you're doing in your congregations. God is still working. We need to be rebelling against a world that says, don't get involved, don't matter, don't matter, don't go to Haiti. Why would you go to Haiti? Don't go out into that neighborhood that you've never been to or with the people that you don't talk to that you're afraid of. We need to be fighting against that apathy. We need to be fighting against that poverty, fighting against that oppression and darkness and doing it in the name of Jesus. Um, one of the stories 
of January 23rd that I cling to because there were many that came out. But the one that I think about every morning when I drop my daughter off at school is the story of the teachers and the administrators who ran toward the gunfire. Mm -hmm. And there's one in particular that when I heard his story, he said he didn't know how many shooters there were. He just knew children were crying and running out, so he ran in. I need that hope to send my daughter back to that school. I needed that story. I am so thankful for the rebels and warriors who protect our children and who work in our churches. Um, a week and a half ago, Wednesday night Bible class, we had all the kids from three to fifth grade, and our lesson was the fiery furnace. They all knew that story. They told me as soon as I told them what our lesson was. And they're like, how do we know that? I'm like, wait a minute, let's just talk about it because we all come together as a big group before we break up into our individual groups. So we went over the fiery furnace. Um, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar. But before we split, we watched our little cartoon video clip. Four kids, but way dramatic. I mean, way dramatic. I kept thinking, wow. And the kids were all sitting on... Um, on the floor, and the same kids who kept saying, I know that story, were just drawn into that cartoon and the music and the drama and the chaos. And when Nebuchadnezzar's guards picked up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and one by one he threw them in the fire, and those kids were just like, huh. Then the um, soldiers, they died, and they were just really worried, except for one four-year-old little boy who was sitting in the middle of them. And he turned to one of them and he'd shake them real hard and say, don't worry, it's okay, it's okay, I, re I know this story, I know this story. And then he turned to the person next to him and he shook your little girl and he was like, it's okay, I know this story, I remember this story. I was like, that's us, that's the rebels and warriors saying, it's okay, I remember the story, remember? We know this story, we know how this story ends, it's going to be okay. Let's end in prayer. God, we thank you so much just for even allowing us to live in a place so we can come together like this and fellowship with other Christians, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for this college. We thank you for the administration. We thank you for those who have traveled, Lord. And we thank you for the rebels and warriors who we know now, who have influenced us, who are making a difference. Lord, give us that courage. Give us the courage to go back into our homes and our congregations and our communities. Give us the courage to walk into those communities, into those places, and talk to people we don't know and love on them and show them Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for every, every rebel and warrior that you have ever given strength and courage to, Lord. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be who you'd have us to be, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming.